Being a mom is the toughest job there is, and it doesn't come with instructions. So it's okay if you don't have all the answers. We'll figure it out together. This is Mom Brain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Hey guys, welcome back to Mom Brain. I'm Daphne. And I'm Ilaria. And if you are dreading the talk, <laughs> the sex talk. Like me, Daphne. <laughs> like you. If, if you are as living in fear nervous. like Ilaria is. She's so nervous. I feel like everybody's um, about- nervous. They just don't admit that they're as nervous as I do. Or I'm just really nervous. I don't know. Maybe you guys are really cool. <laughs> Way cooler no, than me. We are all thinking about having that talk at some point with our kids. And this is going to be an episode that hopefully will help us reason through how to do that properly. Yes. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Leah Liss, a.k.a. the shameless psychiatrist, as she likes to call herself. She's a double board certified adult and child psychiatrist and assistant clinical professor at New York Medical College and author of No Shame, Real Talk with Your Kids About Sex, Self-Confidence, and Healthy Relationships. Per usual, we're going to ask some inappropriate questions. (laughs) I'm going to ask all the inappropriate questions. I'm terrified and hopefully we'll find some relief (laughs) at the same time. This should be a good one, guys. Listen up. So I'm uh, Dr. Leah Lease and I am a child psychiatrist and I wrote the book, No Shame, Real Talk with Your Kids About Sex self-confidence and healthy relationships. I call myself the shameless psychiatrist, as you can imagine why. And so you can follow me on shameless psychiatrist on Instagram or my website, which is uh, shamelesspsychiatrist.com. And so there's a ton and I write a lot for psychology today. So I, there's a ton of blog posts on there about many topics around sex and kids. I have to tell you that this is a topic that is, um, I feel like, Daphne, do you feel like I'm a little more stressed out about it than you? Or have you? Have I just been more verbal about it? It's literally been like the thing of most of parenting stuff. I just don't know. Do you know what? I don't have the, I, I think you have the stress about the, the sex conversation. I have most recently had the stress about the baby's conversation, period. Like where do babies come out of? What is going on down there? Like, so my kids are like, they're very, they, they have come to the idea that you pee out the baby because they're like, you poop it out. And I'm like, nope, nope, other hole. So you pee out the baby. And I kind of think like pushing for me kind of feels like a reverse Kegel, which is kind of like pee. So it all comes to that place. And then they're all into, you know, they've, they've seen me postpartum. So they kind of, they kind of know everything that comes out. Um, but so they're very into that, but they're very, but they're also very focused on how the baby gets in there. And that's a conversation that I don't, I mean, I feel like I'm like, I'm a yoga teacher. I'm super out there, but it stresses me out. Like my heart starts beating fast. Like, so, so my daughter, Carmen, she asked me, um, she's like, mommy, I really want to know how babies are made. And I'm like, (gasps) and she's like, she's like, and and she has this whole thing. It's like a magic. It's like a potion that somebody told her to the seed and an egg and you make it. And she's like, next time you and daddy make a baby, can I watch? And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, I just want to climb under the rug. And I've had so many moments where I'm like, gonna start the conversation. And then my mouth just goes dry and I change the topic. But like, it's really not fair. So anyway, I I feel like, first of all, we're going to preface that our nervousness with that and how much we're excited to hear from you. But tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's go from that. Tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us about how um, how you came to to be, to be you and, and know all these things that you're going to teach us and hopefully bring us less stress about. 
Well, you know, you have five children, right? Yeah. You're, you have five and uh, yeah, Daphne has four. Um, so you, you are like literally their, you know, biology lesson. They see you go through the whole pregnancy and all that. And so for them, it's very natural to be curious. I mean, this is an amazing thing they're witnessing, um, because they have the, the power of watching their siblings being created and born. So, but about me, um, I am a child and adolescent psychiatrist. I started to, um, be passionate about, you know, helping kids when I was 14. And I had an aunt who was like super interested in, uh, worked at a psychiatric ward locally. And so I started volunteering at 15 at a local psychiatric uh, facility for ADHD kids, like as a, like a, like a camp sort of sub camp counselor. And then like, by the time I was 19, you know, I was already doing research at this facility called Hillside in Long Island. And, um, it's like, I'm just passionate about it. Like, you know, it's a calling for me. So then I worked at St. Vincent's. I was there through 9-11, the whole thing. And, you know, I met so many different kinds of families, um, so many different kinds that by the time I um, got into residency, finished, completed, worked, I had seen every every kind of parent. There, there was imaginable. And then the Me Too movement kind of started and I got really interested in like, what are we doing wrong here? Like, why are... So many men so badly behaved. Why are so many women talking about being assaulted? And I decided it was because we were just doing sex education and raising children completely wrong. And um, so they didn't, it's not that they didn't know better. It's that we did not do our jobs as parents to, you know, provide an environment in which they could really understand what was going on. So that's why I started to research the book, wrote the book. And I have to tell you, I am so grateful I was given, you know, went down that road because now I have such clarity and vision. And I really think I do know how we should be raising children based on all the research I did on how they do it in Northern European countries and thinking about all the deficits that we have here. And, you know, the reality is I think you have to be honest with kids from the start because the most important thing, not, you know, one of the most important things they'll do as an adult is have sex and enjoy sex and have a healthy, pleasurable, intimate relationship. But that starts, you know, we're, we're born to be sexual. We're born to have a great relationship with our bodies. We want that, but we have got to be given the tools. And instead we're giving so much shame. We're taught shame. We're taught shame, 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 shame on a million cultural messages from the minute we're born. And so that's why women and men have so many hangups, do things all wrong, afraid to communicate, don't know how to um, communicate their boundaries. So specifically on your question, you said, you know, I just don't know how to talk to my kids about sex. I don't know how to address the awkward. And the answer is like, just go for it. Like be honest, just tell them the truth from the start. And obviously they're not going to really understand what it all means. So you're going to use language that's developmentally appropriate and you're going to fill in details as you go along. So um, it's not just that one sex talk in the mall. It's ongoing sex talks, like from the second that they can speak all the way up the line and you fill in more and more details. Cause you know what kids are like, you tell them something, they forget like, you know, an hour later, they don't remember what you said. So you have to like keep reminding them and then keep going over the same concepts, but filling in more and more details. So like, how did we learn to do algebra? We didn't learn by like, you know, all of a sudden knowing how to do algebra, we learned by doing our times tables. We learned, you know, slowly being filled in and on math concepts until we could do algebra. So that's how like sex talks work. Like there are little tiny little concepts that are given all along, starting very early as soon as they can talk. 
Okay, so let's go back to starting very like we want we want a step by step guide of how we are supposed <laughs> to do this. So my youngest is seven weeks old today. So let's start there. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> seven weeks old. I feel like okay, Eduardo. This is what happens. He's probably the easiest one to have the conversation with. Yeah, it's probably practice more for us than him. Like I'm just gonna have like this like this therapeutic conversation for yeah. myself, and he will not remember any of it. He'll be like, great, but can I eat now? Um, but like, should this be something that we start as early as like two? Yeah, but so I mean, even even with your seven week old, you can start label. You know, when you're little and you label nose and eyes and mouth, it's like you know you 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 label it. It's it's a penis. Like you have a son, right? Right. Uh, your youngest is a son, and you know it's a penis. Those are your testicles. This is your buttocks. This is your belly button. This is your nipples, and you can literally label their body parts so they learn the right names for things just like they're learning right. nose and ears and eyes and it's like so you start like there you know you start right there and then it's like you know this is the two-year-old like how do you take care of your body parts like you know you, if it's a girl you wipe from front to back because that's going to prevent them you say it's to prevent you from getting you know problems with you know your poop your feces like you know you don't want to get that in your vagina because that's not good for you. You just tell them or if the, if you don't I don't know if you've circumcised your children, but you have to t- teach them how to clean their penis if they have a foreskin and then you do that from an early age. So you just tell them like right. you know this is how you clean it. And you be very like just you know don't even like if if you're embarrassed go to the mirror and just say you know penis penis penis. You know <laughs> um you know vulva vulva vulva. And so it doesn't like you don't like for, you know, it's a weird thing to say if you're not used to it, as opposed to pee pee or whatever. And then what? See, that that part, we check, check. We're all good with like the real words. You I and mean, I've heard, I've, I've heard a lot that like, you know, one of the things that we can do that's not great for our kids is we, you know, give them little like n- nicknames for, and I definitely noticed that difference. I don't know with you, Daphne, at home, but like, I know I definitely noticed a difference with my husband and me. Like he's, my husband's 26 years older than me. He's, he's from a different, where he's like telling, telling the kids that their penis is called a weenus. And I was like, okay, we need to stop that. I was like, it is a penis and we will use the proper word. But like, so I I mean, I feel like there's, those ones are like the easier steps. Where do you get to the part where you have to tell the kids that the penis goes inside a vagina in order to make a baby? You you tell them that as soon as possible. Like you don't keep it a secret. There's the great books, like It's Not the Stork, um, which will like take you through it. And they say it's like from ages two and up, like, It's just, you know, right away, it's a biology lesson. You know, it's penis, vagina, penis has the seeds, you know, inside the vagina is the uterus and fallopian tubes that releases eggs. And then the the penis goes inside the vagina that releases seeds. The seeds go up, they find an egg and that starts a baby. And this is called sex. And you say that to a kid, it's not like they're they're not even to know, they're not going to feel awkward about it. They have no idea that it's something to feel awkward about. They'll just be like, okay. That's it. And then they'll immediately forget and ask you again a year later. And they're like, how does it happen? And then they'll forget again. And they'll forget again until that one point when they're like 10 or nine, when they realize that there's something to that, that, you know, means more than just like a biologist. And then it becomes more real for them. But that's good because then they'll never have like the misinformation. They'll never think the baby comes out of the belly button or it's pooped out or it's just better they know. And, and, and I've heard parents say like, well, what if they tell all the other kids? Great. Let them tell the other kids. If it's true, you should be proud, you know? 
And, you know, if if it's factual as opposed to not factual and you just make it like so not awkward, it's all your shame, your internalized shame. It's not theirs. Mm -hmm. Interesting. My kids last week when we had this crazy conversation, I don't know, it was my son's fifth birthday and he really wanted to know, I'd been joking with him that five years ago, I was sitting with him in my belly, a giant belly, and I was eating like all of the frat boy food because that's all I craved when I was pregnant with him. And then, of course, immediately he was like, well, how did I get in there? And what am I, what was, you know, how did I come out from there? And so I casually answered that he was much smaller when he came out. And he was like, that wasn't the question I asked. (laughs) I was like, damn, damn. (laughs) Um, So foiled again. So then then I said, how do you think you got out? And And of course, his sister, who's a little older, answered your butt. And she, and she was like, you told me it was your butt. And I, I think I didn't tell her it was her butt. I think I just didn't correct her when she assumed it was butt when I said like, oh, down here. Because um, obviously it seems way more legitimate that something the size of a baby could come out of your butt than out of your <laughs> pee hole. Yes, so, that's true. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'll just say that I do, I do, I am curious about, look, my kids are six and under. So I do, and, and Alaria is the same age. So I think that it's, um, I never want my kids to be embarrassed. I never want them to think I told them the truth, repeat it to a friend and be shamed for not knowing the right answer. And because that makes them not trust me. And I think the the most critical thing we can cultivate as parents with our kids is absolute trust. Like you should be able to tell me anything. I want to be able to tell you anything, but I also want to be conscientious of the fact that like, there are concepts that five-year-olds are not going to understand and like appropriateness that five-year-olds are not going to understand. And I guess I'm sort of trying to figure out how to walk that line. And you really, uh, you know, sparked a thought in me when you were talking about the research you were doing about how Europe might handle the shame around these concepts differently. And maybe that is at the root of some of the very strange behavior that we continue to witness across the board in adults. Um, So maybe, maybe can you start there a little bit? Like, what do you think is different about the way that parents are having this conversation or not having this conversation in you know, in your, through your research, what did you find? I find that American parents have internalized a lot more shame than Europeans. Like, so for example, Northern European cultures are very upfront about sex and sexuality from very early on. Uh, Sex education starts in kindergarten there, like as a curriculum. Wow. Um, And and it is very factual, you know, very, very factual. And they also talk a lot, the Dutch, they talk a lot about intimacy and love even very early they'll say oh they'll say you know max has a crush on lila you know and you know like in they're like seven you know oh look look they have a crush like and they'll be like that's that's something you know wow like that's very nice they have a crush you know and so they're already talking about like how people can have intimacy and relationships mm-hmm. and then you know oh you know that that you know they're no longer have a crush on each other anymore so they're already modeling the idea of you know, rejection and loss. And so they have a lot better ways of handling, you know, the whole curriculum around intimacy, love connection. And then they're a lot more open about sex in like they allow their teenagers to have sex in their home without question. They never like, you know, they give them birth control, you know, they'll even all get into the sauna together, mom, dad, child, you know, children, and the children's boyfriend, you know, make it. And, and it's totally okay. It's just a different approach. And, you know, and I'm not just saying that because so what, you know, everybody can do things their way, but they have much 
lower rates of teenage pregnancy. They have, you know, much better gender equality, you know, in terms of like financial, they have great, you know, um, their, their parameters are way better than ours. You know, when you look at the measures of like, you know, their abortion rates, their, everything is better there because I think of the way they handle intimacy and sexuality. So I believe that they're onto something that we need to model as Americans, which is that, you know, teach them early, teach them often, and don't be ashamed. Just go for it. And it's also about, you know, we haven't even gotten to boundaries. You, you guys have boys. Like, you know, how do you explain boundaries and consent? And that starts by like, and I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about boundaries and consent around who you can touch and why. And that starts at two. You know, who can you touch? Why? You know, on what conditions? Like, they need to learn that from a very early age. And then you get to it sexually, you know? So it's like, who gets to touch my privates, you know? And I talk about privates, like, what are privates? Label them, you know, that's your vulva, your penis, your anus, your buttocks. These are, you know, this area, this is my private area. Who gets to touch it and why? And if somebody at school comes up to, to you, you know, if this is your explaining to your child, someone comes up to school and touches you in, on your butt on your, you know, nipples, anywhere you don't like, you immediately can tell the teacher, you know, you can tell the teacher and you can say, please don't touch me there. I don't like it. Now I have a question, you know, we're using these words privates. We're, you know, wanting, we're some, we're wanting to find this really interesting balance that, I mean, because we live in this country, sounds like from, from what you're saying, where there is a lot of shame surrounded, um, surrounding sex that, you know, we're, we're teaching them that there are things that are private, Therefore, if it's open, it's shame. So it's, it's kind of gets a little confusing, you know, and yes, to say, well, these are my mm. privates, yet I can be open with them, but they're private. And, and, you know, for me, there's, there's certain things where, you know, I've, I've been told and my boys are really young. I've got my seven-year-old girl and then my boys are five, four, two and seven weeks old. And, um, so I haven't kind of started it yet, but like when kids start touching themselves and stuff like that. I was told you, I was told that what you should say is, oh, you know, that's okay, but go do that in the bathroom or go do that in your room. Now, where do you cross that line of saying, you know, is that shame of like, oh, I shouldn't be doing that here. I should be doing that there, but it's okay to do. Is that confusing kids? Is that creating shame? And, you know, but then how, how, I mean, and I'm just going to be open, like how strange it would be if I didn't encourage them to go in another place. You know what I mean? Um, I don't, yeah. maybe, maybe and, not. You know, I mean, I would, I, I think in, I think in the future it would get a little bit strange if you didn't, if you didn't explain yeah. that this is like something that we don't do together uh, or, or are you saying that maybe that should be, I don't, I don't know. So I've grappled with the word private and I've come to terms with, I like it because of the exact thing you're saying, like it's private, but it's, it's okay, but it's not okay. And, and, and I think that I like privates and I'm going to keep that. That's the one kind of vernacular about genitalia that I have, I believe is good because it says that these are for me. They're my private areas that I control. And that's how you have to say it. Mm-hmm. And you, it's not, and then, you know, you say, and when they're little, no one should be touching them there except right. for you and the pediatrician or the caregiver. And you say that, like, no one touches you there except for these people. But then you say, when you get older, you may choose to allow people to touch you there, but that's always up to you. And, you know, that's sex, but that's something you worry about when you're a teenager. And I've already told this to my kids, you know, you know, and that's something called sex and that's something that feels good. And that's something you're really going to like to do, but that's for later. For now, it's no one touches it. 
you know, and I think that's the messaging I I like because it's say, it's not saying like no one ever gets to touch you there. It's something to be shamed about. And then of course masturbation. Yes, you know, in North some Northern European countries, and I think they, this is where they lose me a little bit. Um, they completely ignore masturbation. So if a child starts to masturbate at the dinner table, they won't say anything, you know, and they'll just let it happen, and they will hope that eventually the kid will realize no one else is doing that and stop. As as opposed to actually saying, like, go up to your room. I think you you need to say, in our culture, you know, it's a little different. I think you need to say, like, listen, you know, it feels really good. I encourage you to do it. But please do it in a, in a location where no one can see you because we don't do that in front of other people. And, and, you know, just say that. And then, and then you say, listen, if you need space and you want, you know, that space to do that, just let me know. And I won't, you know, I'll knock. I won't interrupt. So that's where I fall out on that. I feel like us understanding the word private is almost something that we have to redefine that just because something is private doesn't mean it's something that you should be ashamed of. We had, we had a woman on our podcast that, that talked about, um, you know, you talk about things that are good. You don't, you know, a lot of times we, well, we don't talk about things that are not good, that we want to hide, that there's shame surrounding things that we don't talk about. That being said, when we're directing our kids to be like, okay, you can do this, but just don't do it around me. You know, where is that an opening? I'm just riffing here. Is that an opening for all other stuff? Okay, well, you can do X, Y, and Z, just not around me. And you can do this, just not around me. And is that teaching them also to not be open? I mean, I, I don't, it, these are just all the things that keep me up late at night and I worry about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, boundaries create safety zones for like physical and emotional health. Like, you know, knowing that that this area is private, that there are boundaries surrounding it It creates a sense of safety. And like, you know, I think they're good. And I want kids to live a blame and shame-free life, which is why I wrote the book to begin with. So, you know, I want them to know that there are things that are private. There are things that are for them. And I don't think that creates shame. I don't. I think what creates shame is when parents give misinformation or when parents get awkward because they're kids are watching us. They know when you are feeling awkward or you don't want to address something and you know, the look on your face. And that's when they internalize shame because they're saying, I shouldn't have asked that question. My mom just got super weird, you know? So, you know, I, I shouldn't have asked that. So then they start to figure out there's something they should know, which is why I think you should just tell them from the start. Now, the level of detail you're going to give is very different, right? You're not going to lay into every single detail about it. First of all, they want to understand. But very simple, like how does the baby come out? Well, baby's in your uterus. And when it's ready to come out, it pushes up on on a thing called the cervix. And the cervix is like a hole. And it goes from this to that. And then the baby comes out and then it snaps back shut. And then they'll all get that. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> There's a really funny scene from I'm Sorry where she explains it to him, uh, to her, the little girl. And then the little girl goes, you know, the little girl's, wait you know, is it still that big? And then the, and the, and the mom's like, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> it's, it's, really, it's such a funny, funny scene. You know, I think at minimum, it probably, like that's way less interesting and cool than whatever they thought was going to happen. So maybe it just stops. <laughs> yeah. It's It like ceases to have that sort of intrigue. And because it is, it's, 
it's unknown and mom gets awkward when you ask her about it. And like, maybe I should not, but I'm curious. And maybe there's a unicorn there. Like there's a whole, I can just see the fantastical, you know, world of whatever's happening. Um, and so I think the very, although it's like very cut and dry and even as a, as a doctor's daughter and granddaughter, whatever, like it feels bizarre to me to have that conversation. But I listening to you, I do think that, that there's a, a dryness to it and a factuality to it that sort of is like, uh, oh, okay. Like, I guess I'll like learn more about that when I'm older too, which is good. And it, it's, it is uninteresting in a good way, depending on how old your children are. It's kind of, there is a cut and dry nature of it, but there's also so much wonder. Like, I don't want to make it be boring. Like you can be like, this is one of the most amazing things that can happen in your life. Like you can create a new being. Like This is amazing. Like, I don't want you to be like, boring about it. Be like, wow, how amazing what women can do. Like our bodies, if you have a daughter, our bodies do this amazing thing. I think it's really kind of I know. No, of course I get that. Obviously having, having been through it, I do think like the miracle of life is unbelievably cool. And I feel a little bit like what you're saying is like telling someone who's on a diet, like pizza's incredible. You're going to love pizza <laughs> when you can have it. And it's like, I know. So, you know, um, and I, I don't want to do that to my kids either. Cause it's like, you'll like it in a 10 year, you know, who's going to wait 10 years. It's, you know, it's uh, well, but, uh, but at the, at the same time, so then I mean, you guys obviously both have, you are your kids small. Well, how old are your kids? Uh, seven and 10. Okay. So your kids are relatively small. So I know with my kids, the moment that you say penis, vagina, poop, pee, anything, they're anything, it's but. funny, but anything, That's they think hilarious. it's so funny. So I just imagine myself, I mean, I'm trying to like bring it all back to like what we have to do as mothers, as parents, as fathers, as as people who are are armed with the information and we need to give the information. And everybody has said that it's so important for us to have the conversation first before they hear it from their, their friends or on the internet or, you know, just start figuring it out on their own, which is probably how many of us grew up. Um, you know, I... I'm imagining sitting down, not in the mall, <laughs> especially times after in COVID, there are no malls, um, sitting down and trying to have this conversation. And then the moment that I say vagina or penis or penis inside vagina, then they're going to just lose their their little minds and just think it's like the funniest thing <laughs> in the world. So do you stay factual with that? Then I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to like go back to this conversation. I'm like, all right, well, Dr. Liz told us to do this. So am I supposed to like take a deep breath or am I supposed to be like, because I'll like laugh with them. I, I completely become like a little kid and start laughing. My two-year-old just starts coming. He goes, my penis. You know, he says that like all the time because he learns it from the older ones. And we're like, yes, that's a penis. There you go. It's right there. You know what I mean? I don't really, we're just trying to be as open as possible. That being said, we haven't, other than peeing, we haven't really talked about the function of the penis. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think books, like it's not the historic or great way to like, you I know, have that book. you know, just kind of like, you know, give you the basics of what, like what you should say, but then, you know, just laugh with them and be like, yeah, it's kind of funny, like penis and poop. And, and they're at that Freudian stage of, you know, the anal stage of development where they find anything involving poop or farts really funny. And that's like, you know, age four to age seven, it's very like normal developmental stage. And, you know, it is kind of funny in a way, like, you know, I don't think you need to make it so serious. Like 
you know, fart jokes are kind of funny. And even now, like my most popular toy at my office when I give out toys, like at the end of the session is the whoopee cushion. (laughs) And so like, even though I'll sit on it, I'll let them blow it up and I'll sit on it and I'll laugh. I, I think laughing is totally a fine response. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun and, and, and it's funny. And a lot about it is kind of crazy and wild. And so, I mean, I don't think you have to be that serious. You can, you can make, you know, you could, you could laugh with them and, and just, but then be like, okay, enough laughing back to the yeah. book. So I want to pivot us a little bit, um, from, from this like foundational conversation that we're going to have with your kids at various stages of their life. And I should, I just want to say, we will talk about it too, but your book, No Shame, Real Talk with Your Kids About Sex, Self-Confidence, and Healthy Relationships, does talk about the importance of opposite sex role models for kids too. Because I think what Alari was just saying too, it's, it's so interesting that like you as the mom are really okay saying penis and then Alec wants to call it a weenus. And it's like how, you know, you, you learn so much from being the parent of an opposite sex child. And I'm really curious about how your child is absorbing different things from that opposite sex role model. And I'd love you to talk a little bit more about that. Sure. I mean, I think opposite sex role models are so important. If you're in a single sex relationship, you, you should really foster them, you know, very intentionally. Um, and obviously if you're, if you're married, um, in, in, in heterosexual relationship, it, there, it's already there. So it's built in. So, you know, because I think the effect of a father on a daughter in terms of their sexuality is critical. It's the first, you know, male relationship this, you know, as a young person, you will have. And, you know, the research shows that that relationship translates to healthy relationships with their partners later on. And so, you know, the impact a father can have on a daughter when he sits that daughter down and says, instead of saying, if any guy ever hurts you, you know, I'm going to kill him. That's like wrong messaging. You know, it says, I want you to choose who gets to touch you and why and on what, you know, circumstances. And I want you to feel that you are always getting something out of the relationship, that it's making you happy, that it's making you feel good. And if it's not, there is something wrong. Now that just that, that those five sentences can literally make or break a woman's sexual life and can make or break whether or not they get raped or, or hurt later on, because it's so empowering. And I mean, I have seen it over and over again in my practice with, you know, girls who have strong fathers are so, and identify with their fathers are much more successful and much less likely to be hurt. And I think it's just a powerful relationship. And yet a lot of men are very afraid. They're afraid to have that conversation with their daughters because nobody ever told them it was okay. So I'm telling them right now. You know, Alec, every other father out there, it's okay. Do it. I'm I'm definitely very lucky with that. And it's been interesting to watch Alec with um he has got a 25-year-old. Um, so we're definitely very lucky that we've and 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 the fact of having an older um yet not mother figure for for the kids, it's been pretty incredible to to see that and see my kids watch um my stepdaughter date. Um, this has been, and, mm. and Alec, I have to say is like a really cool dad for older, like an older, he's like, a, he's like a buddy. You know what I mean? Like Ireland and him are buddies, which is really, which is really incredible to see. Um, because awesome. she's super open, like super, way more open than I was at that age. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of that, you know, says something about, about his parenting. Um, now what are the things that we do 
aside from being, you know, like feeling squirmish about the, about the talk and stuff like that, what are things that we do when we're trying to create boundaries with the kids in terms of saying, Hey, you know what? You probably, you know, you shouldn't be having sex at nine. You got to wait for the pizza, as Stephanie says. You know what I mean? Got to wait. Got to wait later. Yes. <laughs> um, what, what, are, what are ways that we can say that we can not that we can not shame them and teach them that this is a good thing, yet it's a thing that happens when you're older? Yeah. And, and, and I think that studies show that parents are more open and communicative about uh, sex and all that have children who delay their sexual initiation, which means that the kids have sex later and wait longer because they have more information. Um, a lot of children get into these situations where they're having sex at an early age because their parents were not very involved in the discussions. So, you know, I think this idea that if someone tells you, you know, to jump off a bridge that you would like, you know, because you know about it, you would do it. It's like, you know, it's over and over. Like if someone talks about suicide, you're not going to just right. go and commit suicide. Like all the studies show the same thing over and over and over again. Having a conversation about sex does not make your kid want to have sex. Your kid will want to have sex regardless, <laughs> you know, and it, what it will do is make them understand that there are a lot of things to think about. So I think you should be very involved in the, dis- with your child. You should partner with your child around the discussion of sexual initiation, which I don't like the word losing your virginity because I don't think you're losing anything and you're gaining, you know, so much. Um, so, you know, I call it sexual initiation. So what is the conversation you have around sexual initiation? And I think that's a great discussion to have with your child. And if you know when your child is going to have sex for the first time, that means you are being a really good parent and you shouldn't run away from it. You should run towards it. Um, and you should give them the space to do it and the contraception. Right. You know, just, just go for it. And you will have, you will not be encouraging them to have sex. That is totally untrue. You know, you will just, if anything, delay the first time they have sex because you will make them think about it more. You will say things as a parent, like, do you really love this person? Can you trust this person? Do you think they have your back? You know, where, where are they getting their birth control? What birth control are you going to use? Where are you going to do it? Blah, blah, blah. And all those things are going to make them think, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. Oh yeah, I got to do that. I got to go there. I got to, and then, uh, you know, you're delaying, you know, if anything. And then when it does happen, like you should be really like, you know, you should just embrace them and say, this is such a big step. I'm like so proud of you. This is such a great new chapter in your life. And, you know, you should meet their person, whoever they pick, you know, shake their hand, look them in the eye, give them a hug too. Like it can be this great moment. It doesn't have to be like, you know, it can be this really beautiful moment. And that's what I want for, for family. Interesting. What do you, I mean, this is going to be maybe controversial, but it's not intended to be. Um, what do you say to parents uh, whose religious beliefs about sex before marriage does not equate with what I'm sure you see in your practice, which is that a lot of kids are having sex when they're young, probably before they're married. Like, but I mean, those are, those are, those are social mores that have been around for a long time, potentially for protective reasons. So, and I'm sure there are listeners who are curious, like they want to, they want, of course, to protect their kids. They want to give them the tools to navigate life with confidence and with strength and with personal protective mechanisms. But, um, but they also hold dear these things that these values that they were raised with. What do you say to them? Well, I think um, um, imparting your values to your children is very important, whatever they might be, your cultural values, whether it be religion or ethnic or whatever that you hold dear. And I think you can import those values. Um, in, and I encourage those parents to do that. 
the reality is if you are very hard hearted about it and you say, this is what we do in our family and I won't tolerate any other kinds of behavior, that's, you know, you're just going to have ostrich syndrome because most people are getting married way later, like late twenties, early thirties. And most parents don't want their kids getting married at 20, like they might've, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And so you got to decide, you know, what is it that you represent? Do you want your kid to get married at 20? Because they're not honestly, no, it's not realistic. It's ostrich syndrome to think that your kid is going to wait till they're 30 and be, you know, you know, join a convent until they're 30. And then all of a sudden at 30 have sex. Like you can't have it both ways, you know, you just can't. So decide what you want. You know, do you want your kid to get married at 20? In which case then embrace, embrace that and say, you know, get married young and, you know, find someone and you'll have your partner. Or do you want them to be more of a modern person and live, you know, in a modern world and wait till they're done with college and they start their career and all that, in which case don't have ostrich syndrome. You just can't have it both ways. In the Danish model that you were talking about before, where I am, I'm really intrigued by this idea, like the same way with alcohol in Europe, like kids are given a drink of wine when they're really little. And therefore it's not like at 18, they are just, it's all this pent up, like, you know, excitement around getting drunk and not having a responsible association with how adults Mm -hmm. consume and enjoy alcohol. And it makes sense to me that like there is some element of the taboo nature of sex that we create in this country that makes it's hard for young people to have a respectful and um, and just thoughtful relationship with sex themselves. What is the like wait for wait for marriage sex talk like in in Denmark? Is there if if it's not there, is there an increased incidence of like getting married really young and higher divorce rates? Like what is there any sort of corollary there? Well, the Northern European countries tend to be very liberal. Like they they don't even you know they're not even getting married very much anymore. Um, even the incidence of actual marriage is going way down because they have such great social protections, whether you're married or not, you know, it doesn't matter. So you can be married or you cannot be married. You still get the same amount of everything. You know, you can still visit your partner at the hospital. If they're dying. Like it, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't like, so less and less people in those countries are getting married and the relationships are way more equitable. You don't see the same kind of gender roles, like women and men earn you know, very similar incomes, both work. Um, men, you know, get as much paternity leave as women get maternity leave. Um, all the daycare and childcare is free. So it's like, it's this, you know, kind of social construct where the, these kinds of things, these kind of cultural things that we've embraced, you know, the man usually earns more money and the women take more time off when they have a baby. None of that stuff really exists in the same way in Northern Europe. So the whole, everything is different. So, I mean, I think it would almost be unheard of for a Northern European, you know, a Dutch mother to say to their kids, wait till you're married. I mean, it's, it's almost unheard of there. It's just a totally different cultural construct. Um, but in the, in our country, you know, it happens because we have a lot of, of a different value system. Um, and, and I'm all for like, you know, if that's your values and that's what you choose to do. I just visited a men, the Mennonites, you know, in, in up, upstate New York and, you know, their culture, they're probably marrying very early and they're having sex, you know, at 18, 19, cause they're married. And I think that's great. Cause that's their culture. Um, we are meant, you know, to be sexual creatures by 17, 18 and to think otherwise is just ridiculous. I mean, you know, this is how our, this is our biology. This is how we were designed. This is, you know, create creation, you know, and, and so to deny that and to deny our children's 
um, sexual fulfillment and is just really silly and ostrich syndrome and embrace it and just help them become the person they're meant to be, which is a sexually fulfilled and happy adult. You know, one, one word that I, um, that my kids are becoming aware of because they'll hear it in songs is the word sexy. Yes. Um, which I think is interesting Mm. because I'm not as much as I'm freaked out about actually having that conversation with them. I'm not freaked out when they hear, and they've even asked me, they're like, mommy, what does sexy mean? And you think about all the stuff that they're seeing online and even in movies, even in kids' movies, there's different layers for all of us. You know, my kids Mm -hmm. love like Secret Life of Pets and Shrek and all these kinds of movies. And we definitely like, you and I will understand something different than they're going to understand. But these seeds are getting planted in them. So why is it that we're almost teaching our kids that it's okay to be sexy yet sex is scary. And it's even the same word. There's just a Y at the end. And how do we explain mm-hmm. to kids, hey, this is what you're seeing and this is what sexy is. When you're seeing somebody, when you're seeing, you know, your uh, older cousin or your, you know, your neighbor, they're posting something and they're looking like this and you're seeing the word sexy around it. How are you supposed to make sense out of that? And is this something that we strive for? How does that go into the the conversation of consent as well? Yeah, I mean, we are, I think, over-sexualizing our youth. Like with TikTok and all these things, they're starting to learn these moves and they don't even know what they're doing, but they're, they're, they're imitating them and they're saying these very, you know, brutally, uh, insanely grotesque words that they, you know, they're just mouthing them. They don't know what they mean. And so then all of a sudden you're watching this video of your like 12 year old doing this stuff and you're like, Oh my God, you know, and, and it's happening like constantly just, you know, social media and, you know, social media is sexualizing children in a way that like never, I never, our culture never expected. Um, and I'm horrified as a psychiatrist for children and what I'm seeing constantly and also the cultural messages that they're taking in so subliminally, you know, through what they're watching and what they're seeing. Um, I, I don't have the answer to that. It's so difficult. The only thing I could say is, counter program, you know, um, you know, if you see your kid doing some move on TikTok and you're like, you need to say that's, that's not okay. You can't, you can't make that kind of move or you can't wear that outfit because that doesn't represent our values as a family. That might be okay for that family, but that's not who we are because that you're not ready for that yet because you look like an adult that's ready to do things that you're just a child not ready for. And you need to just stay a child. And you need to say like, I'm sorry, you can't wear that midriff shirt on TikTok. You can't expose your body. That's okay for the beach. It's not okay for school. It's not okay online because people may watch it and there are scary people out there. So, you know, it's not okay. And and just, I mean, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable with it with my kids as, you know, and I'm very open, but I part of my openness is to preserve their innocence. You have to preserve your child's innocence. You really do. But I mean, at the same time, then are you planting the seed of shame for their body and being like, I mean, I remember when I was 13 years old and I put a dress on and I put the same dress on that I had put on the year before. And all of a sudden it was an issue. All of a sudden guys in the street were, (laughs) were looking at me and saying, I was 13 years old. And then all of a sudden my family became the, oh, you cannot wear that dress anymore. And I'm like, but I had the dress last year and it was fine. And now it's not okay. And I, that, that was a moment that made me ashamed about my body. 
the, the other day I put up this, this like silly little video of like my kids putting on a performance and they, it's a song from Secret Life of Pets 2, I think. And they're mimicking these bunnies and how these bunnies are dancing. I and mean, when some people wrote to me and they're like, oh my God, they're dancing so sexually and stuff like that. And I was like, they actually are seeing themselves as bunnies, but I can see what they're saying mm-hmm. because of what we're putting on them. And if I say to my kids, hey, you, well, you know, Carmen, you should be, you know, don't show your belly button or, you know, don't, don't do this move or what, whatever. Don't shake your butt at the camera, which is like a, they're imagining this big bunny butt with a cottontail. That's what's going on in their head. Then I'm going to plant a seed where they were innocent before imagining that they're bunnies. So it's also, you know, I mean, it's one thing when I see them trying to emulate, you know, certain people that they see, you know, both, you know, in our family and outside of our family that, you know, are older than them and doing different things. It's another thing when I'm seeing them actually imitating a cartoon that they like. But it just gets to be really, really complicated of if I have this conversation with them, am I muddling up what they're, the innocence that they have, or am I arming them and preparing them for the future? You know, it is a dance girl. It is. I mean, you got to take the shame and blame out of their game, but like, it's a dance because obviously they are innocent. And when they're shaking their little bunny butts, they meet it in the most innocent way, but yet there are predators who might watch it and, you know, target them or target your family. And that's horrifying because you're in the public eye. So, you know, you are definitely high risk, higher risk than my kids are. Nobody cares about their Instagram accounts, you know? So, you know, I think that you, you are walking a delicate line with a lot of, you're going to have to do a lot of, you're, you're going to be tap dancing. Right. When they're teenagers, you're going to be tap dancing, you know, because the line is going to be very blurry. But I think at the same time, the one thing, and Daphne, I'd, I'd love to hear your opinion about this, um, because I, I'm sure that Daphne, you get just as much as I do about what we should and should not post on it on, on Instagram is, um, and this is the same conversation that people who, who might not um, be as much in the public eye, it's, it's just on a different, on a different scale, but it's the same themes is um, I don't really care. I get to a point where I just, I just stop caring if like all the people's opinions and it's actually so liberating. You know, I made like some mm-hmm. silly joke. I tried reels last night for the first time and made a silly joke and took a picture of my belly button ring that my, my friend like shoved in my belly button. And I got it done like forever ago. And I was like, I have five kids. I'm going to shove it back in there. And, and it was, and it was like the silly thing. But then a couple of people were like, oh, I see the top of your underwear. You know what I mean? And you can look at it on, on both sides, but it's also at the same time, you know, you've, you, every single mother is taking photos postpartum. Every single mother is taking photos of themselves postpartum, what their belly like, the, the amazing miracle that is the, the body that goes from before having a baby, during and afterwards. But it ends up being this very interesting thing of what is appropriate and what's not appropriate. Is it oversharing? Um, and and then the liberating thing that I was you know talking about before of I just don't care. Like if somebody says to me, oh my God, I can't believe you did this. Or if they're, to be quite honest, you know, we've had the conversations about predators. I can't control who's seeing me, whether I'm out on the street and somebody's taking a photo of me and I'm unaware of that or the stuff that I put up, I can't control who's seeing it. And with my kids, of course, they're not going to have, you know, social media accounts for really, 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 really long time. That's going to be like, they can have sex before they have social media. That's my particular opinion. But like, I can't help that if somebody is going to be, you know, I'm going to post a really sweet little picture of my kid and somebody has a filthy mind and they're yeah. going to go in their closed dark room and do something. Now, if they come to my door, I will be all mama bear and I will beat you. You know what I mean? But 
if you're going, I, I just can't, I can't help, you know, Alec, Alec is always like, you know, you know, all those men in prison are looking at your Instagram account. And I'm like, yeah, doubt it. I don't think that, I don't know if they can have Instagram, but, but like, but the, he'll say these things about like, oh, this is what you're posting. And this is what you're, you know, what you're allowing them to have. And, you know, I mean, at the same time, I'm like, you know what? I really don't care. I just get to a point where I don't care. I think we've all gotten to that place though, where it's like, I mean, we are just in such a different phase of human evolution where we've allowed and invited complete strangers to have a really intimate vision into our lives. And as adults, it, it, it there have definitely been points where it's more impactful than it should be. And then there's, fortunately, like most of us get to the place of, I just don't care. Like if you're taking what I intended you to take from this, it's good. If you're not, I can't help you. I can't control you. I don't, I have nothing to say. Like it is <laughs> what it is. I'm not going to lose know? sleep about it. I'm not going to lose no. sleep about it. But with the kids, the kids piece, I, ever since we had this conversation with um, the Child Rescue Coalition ladies and the, and you know, the detective Mo who works on their team and everything, it was just, I do, I think twice about everything I put up, not because I can have control over the the creeps that lurk on the internet's depths, but because like, I guess, I mean, you know, this is sort of like a much more cloud of a conversation, but you know, we're, we were, Alari and I were, you know, late teens, early twenties when like social media became a thing. And so in theory, your, your psyche's well-formed. Like, you know who you are. You've been through your social awkwardness, your body awkwardness, all that stuff. And you became a person and then you got the outside commentary. What I, what makes me so nervous all the time is that like our, our kids are going to grow up and constantly feel like other people, that their opinions matter as much as, as people they actually know and care about. Like, I think about this all the time. Whose advice if in your close group of friends or your family, like who would you go to and ask their opinion on something and actually take their advice seriously? And you give all these random strangers the same ability to have that weigh in and to have that input into how you feel about yourself when you are a child with exposure online, which is how I feel about like, you know, little kids on TikTok or little kids on whatever, where they just, they don't know how to filter like this person's opinion means something to me and this person's doesn't. This is a very convoluted way of asking you, how do we, you know, given lots of parents, especially with teenage kids, are so nervous right now about their kids feeling isolated. They're so nervous about their kids feeling out of out of sync with their friends and they're at home and they're all doing all doing all these things that is sort of part of our 2020 reality. And they don't want to be the parent that says you can't go online. And they don't want to be the parent that's the ostrich in the head in the sand that we talked about before, where you're in denial about what your kids actually are and are not exposed to. But they recognize that there are real I mean, all the good conversations you have at home are so easily undone by one crap conversation they have with a friend or a not friend, some random acquaintance online. So how do you, and especially with your own kids, like how, what's your what's your advice to parents in that really challenging situation? Yeah. Well, you know, I talk in my book, No Shame, Real Talk With Your Kids about owning your sexual story. And I think that's what Hilaria is talking about. Like, I have owned my sexual story. I know who I am. I know what I want to put out there. And if you're going to do something weird with it, that's on you. And I love that because you've owned it. You've owned it. Like, this is my body. This is my belly ring. This is what my stomach looks like. And I am going to show it out to the world because I'm proud of it. And it's it represents my values. And so that's like this idea of owning your sexual story and this idea of being proud of who you are sexually. And that's the first step, you know, identifying your values, owning your own sexual story, right? And then the, the, the second step is imparting those values and wisdom onto your children. 
You want them to be proud of their bodies too. You want them to be able to be sexual and sex, you know, and to be happy and and actually be sexy when they're ready for it. And if they want to do that on the internet someday, great, you know, and, but it's also about where are my boundaries where I don't want people in, like, I don't want people in my private business. I don't want people to see certain parts of my body because that's not, that doesn't represent my values. And I am worried about predators. And so I, you identify your values. And then if it goes wrong, like you, you catch your kid on a TikTok that they shouldn't have posted. And, you know, and this happened with Christina Cuomo recently. We had, a, we had a, a discussion because, you know, she's trying to be on it all the time, but like sometimes one or two things slip through that she didn't see. And then, you know, all you know, we're all, we're all going to be there as parents, you know, we're going to, you know, be behind the ink ball and find out that your kid did something that you weren't aware of. Then you got to just course correct. You got to say, this wasn't appropriate. This just doesn't represent our family values. We're, we're going to tweak that here and you're going to move on because none of us are perfect. So, you know, define your values. You know, what are you going to allow to be online about your children? What are you not? When are you going to allow them to have social media? And despite your best efforts, they might create a Finsta, you know, you know, what a Finsta is, you know, where, and you won't even know, you know? So it's like, you're going to try, you're going to do the best you can. All right. (laughs) I don't even know how you're going to do this, but we do like to ask our guests to share a favorite thing. Huh. My favorite thing right now is, I guess it's more of a thing, but like supporting other mothers and uh, not giving each other mommy guilt. Cause I feel like we do that a lot. And I want, I want, my favorite thing is when moms support each other and push and build each other up rather than engage in mommy guilt. So that's my favorite thing right now. Amen. We love that one. And then will you do us one other favor, which is, you know, you've talked a lot about the, this, uh, the stork, it's not the stork book. Will you just tell us a little bit about that? Because it is actually a really great book. And I'd love you to just to, to comment on for a second. Oh, sure. It's not the stork is a book about um, educating your children about where babies come from. So it's a, it's a great biology book um, for younger kids. And then there's another book I actually do like as well called um, sex is a funny word and that's for the tweens um and that really introduces the idea of uh, intimacy and you know sexuality in more of a you know ongoing into puberty stage so those are my two favorite books for children thank you for your time thank you very much bye bye mom bye Dr. Liss gave me a lot to think about. I think really it comes down to we need to really look deep down inside of ourselves about what makes us feel ashamed about this and just be straightforward. Be simple. Be open. Don't shame. Um, I, I am very interested in that whole like the the private, like private is actually okay, um, especially in this day and age when we feel like so much is not so private. Um, and just, you know, acceptance, you know, the more that we shame, the more that the kids are going to close down, close off from us. And and that's not something that I think any of us want. No, exactly. I mean, that's the most important piece for me is I want my kids to be able to talk to me about anything. And I know that I'm still working up to it in, you know, in certain, and my kids are little. And I do think that there's some things that, 
I know she, I know Dr. Liz didn't didn't want it to be this way, but I do think sometimes you make things just sound so dry and boring that they're like, meh, I'll learn about that later. <laughs> um, I just, you know, I never I think we had this conversation at some point, I forget which episode of the podcast, but giving people what they can handle and giving kids what they can handle in this conversation, I think is really important. And every for every parent, that's different. Your understanding of you, every kid is different and your understanding of what they can handle is, you know, it's it's for you to know because um, because you're the parent. But I, I do think that the more open we can be, the less shame we can have around it, the less taboo we can put around it the um, the healthier all of our relationships are going to be, and especially long-term as our kids do get more exposed. Um, Eventually to- they do grow up and, you know, we don't want to create so much damage in that place where we're trying to figure each other out. But also give yourself a break. It is kind of a, a squeamish conversation to have. <laughs> and I don't feel like, you know, one one time us being like, oh, we shouldn't feel that way is going to like, you know, be the ther- all no. the therapy that we need and be like, liberating. like wow, I never <laughs> thought of that before. Wow, this so different. No. Um, anyway, so we can all do this together. Open, simple, deep breaths, maybe some wine for you, not for them. And now it's time for our favorite things. Now it's time for our favorite things. Yes! One of my favorite things right now is a good baby soap for the bathtub. Mm. It's this brand is called Monat. I think, I don't know if you say Monat. It's like Monet, but with an A instead of the E at the, you know, before the T, if that makes any sense. It's M-O-N-A-T. And I really, really like them. I like the ingredients. I think it's a very thoughtful brand. They smell nice. Um, cause sometimes the ones that are a little bit more natural tend you, your kids start to yes. smell like sticks and leaves. And I really don't want my kids to smell like sticks and leaves unless we're, you know, going and rolling and rolling in them outside in the fall. Um, so I really have enjoyed it. And, it, and it's cute. They have a, like very sweet little packaging. And I think it's a nice gift maybe that you can get somebody if they're going to have a baby um, as it's just a very nice, like gentle, gentle little soap and it smells good. Beautiful. My favorite thing this week, guys, is something that also smells beautiful. It is homemade funfetti cake. So all to say, I have tried a number of versions of homemade funfetti cake. And for John's fifth birthday last month, I made what I think is undeniably the best cake I've ever made in my life um, from this recipe that we're going to- something. It real can I just tell amazing. you like I have never no I have there were two things that I did differently that I thought really made a tremendous amount of difference the first is that this batter comes together with um nine beaten egg whites so you whip these egg whites to stiff peaks and then fold them into the batter and it gives this incredible light airy lift that just like makes it look feel taste smell like a store bought cake it is so rich and beautiful all made from scratch And then the buttercream frosting, also something that I not infrequently have been kind of disappointed by when I've made it from at you know from scratch because it kind of just tastes like a lot of butter. The trick was whipping the nine cups of powdered or six cups of powdered sugar into the very fluffy beaten butter one cup at a time. So you're just like constantly beating this butter and really giving it time to work in with the sugar. And then you add the heavy cream at the end. And the net result of this, can I just tell you, was the lightest, most delicious, fluffy, really simple buttercream frosting. And I made this cake and I was just like, gosh, I I don't think... 
I don't think I ever need to eat another cake ever again. (laughs) And that's, you know, that's saying, that's saying a lot given how many terrible cakes I have made in my life. Uh, So yeah, that's the recipe I'm sharing with you for any birthday or special occasion you might have coming up that you just feel like you really need to like knock it out of the park for. Um, All right, guys, that's all we have for you this week. Thanks so much for listening to Mom Brain. Um, You know, I will tell you again, just in case it's your first time ever listening, that you should go listen to all the other episodes. So many great mom conversations. Um, You can follow us at Mom Brain on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. We're on YouTube. And most of all, just come and hang. Come listen to us every Wednesday. We we love getting to hear from you. We're mombrainpod at gmail.com. And yeah, that's it. Bye. We love you. Bye. Bye. This is Mom Brain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Mom Brain is a Gallery Media Group original production.